Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that you would teach us by your word that you are a perfect father. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to fear you in the way the Bible intends for us to, the way you intend for us to. And Lord, we pray that Psalm 2514 would be true in our lives, that we would experience friendship with you, intimacy with you, your secret counsel, which is reserved for those who fear you. And Lord, we pray also that you would make known to us your covenant. Cause us to experience these things, your friendship and the contours of this covenant relationship with you in ever deeper and fuller ways, we ask by your grace, through the power of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus, amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Psalm 60, and we'll be looking this morning at Psalm 60 and 61. And while you're turning there, I just want to reflect for a moment on one of the most moving experiences that I've enjoyed on a, on a couple of different occasions. And that was the privilege of, of preaching a funeral of a very, of very elderly ladies. And um, these ladies were born in the early part of the last century, and they were children during the Great Depression, and then for about a 20-year span, they were bearing children, and then they, 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 they saw their children grow to maturity, and then they themselves grew into old age until finally they passed. And, and what's so special and meaningful about this is to think on the way that it goes so quickly. It goes, what, what seems to be taking such a long time right now, for instance, the children being young or, or changing diapers or, or potty training or the discipline or whatever it is, but when you look at it, when you look at it when it's all over, it seems to have gone so quickly. And the reason I mention that to you is because we have something like that here in Psalm 60. The, the fact that it looks like it went so fast when it's all over doesn't take anything away from the toil and the pain and the labor of all the crises that you went through. And that's what we have here in Psalm 60. Look, look with me at the superscription of this psalm. It says, uh, to the choir master, so this is a very common heading in the psalms, according to Shushan Aduth. I'll say more about that in just a moment. And then we read that this is a miktam of David for instruction. This is a psalm that's meant to teach us. And here I think is, is the instructive part. It says here, when he strove with Aram Nahorayim and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab on his return struck... Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that you would teach us by your word that you are a perfect father. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to fear you in the way the Bible intends for us to, the way you intend for us to. And Lord, we pray that Psalm 2514 would be true in our lives, that we would experience 
friendship with you, intimacy with you, your secret counsel, which is reserved for those who fear you. And Lord, we pray also that you would make known to us your covenant. Cause us to experience these things, your friendship and the contours of this covenant relationship with you in ever deeper and fuller ways, we ask by your grace, through the power of the Spirit, in the name of Jesus, amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Psalm 60, and we'll be looking this morning at Psalm 60 and 61. And while you're turning there, I just want to reflect for a moment on one of the most moving experiences that I've enjoyed on a, on a couple of different occasions, and that was the privilege of, of preaching a funeral of a very, of very elderly ladies. And um, these ladies were born in the early part of the last century, and they were children during the Great Depression, and then for about a 20-year span, they were bearing children, and then they, 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 they saw their children grow to maturity, and then they themselves grew into old age until finally they passed. And, and what's so special and meaningful about this is to think on the way that it goes so quickly. It goes what, what seems to be taking such a long time right now, for instance, the children being young or, or changing diapers or, or potty training or the discipline or whatever it is, but when you look at it, when you look at it when it's all over, it seems to have gone so quickly. And the reason I mention that to you is because we have something like that here in Psalm 60. The, the fact that it looks like it went so fast when it's all over, doesn't take anything away from the toil and the pain and the labor of all the crises that you went through. And that's what we have here in Psalm 60. Look, look with me at the superscription of this psalm. It says, uh, to the choir master, so this is a very common heading in the psalms, according to Shushan Aduth. I'll say more about that in just a moment. And then we read that this is a miktam of David for instruction. This is a psalm that's meant to teach us. And here, I think, is, is the instructive part. It says here, when he strove with Aram Nahariam and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab, on his return, struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. That's like the funeral. That's the line that says, the battle is over and Israel won. That's what that line is doing. That line is telling you Israel came out of that struggle triumphant. And, and these, these people that are mentioned here, Aram Naharayim, this, this Naharayim refers to the two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And what's rendered Aram here is translated Syrians elsewhere. So, for instance, in 1 Chronicles 19 that was read earlier in, in the service, we read about these Syrians from Mesopotamia, from from the Tigris and the Euphrates who have come over to fight against Israel. So what we've got in this psalm is a situation where David is confronted with overwhelming enemies who have come from far away. So near enemies have, have made an alliance with far enemies and then they've all gathered together. Aram Nehariam and Aram Zobah and they've come to fight against Israel. Uh, the psalm is going to relate this anguished cry from deep anxiety, but the superscription, the heading of the psalm is telling us 
The battle's won. The battle's won. So, so Joab struck down 12,000 in the Valley of Salt. Of, of salt. Israel's going to come out on top. But now we go back. As we enter into the psalm, we go back into the struggle of it. And the fact that Israel won a victory doesn't take anything away from the difficulty that they went through. It doesn't take anything away from the fears that David faced. It doesn't take anything away from the fact that God really was disciplining Israel as they faced these enemies. So look with me at Psalm 60 verses 1 through 5 where we'll see here that Israel was in physical distress as a form of spiritual discipline. Physical distress as a form of spiritual discipline. Verse 1, David says, Oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. Why is he saying this? He's saying this because the enemies look overwhelmingly powerful. He's saying this because he knows that the only way Israel is going to be defeated before the face of her enemies is if Israel is experiencing the curses of the covenant. If you remember from from Deuteronomy 28 and other passages back there, uh, the Lord promised five of you will chase a thousand of your enemies if if you obey the covenant. But if you break the covenant, then a thousand of you will be chased by five of your enemies. You're going to be broken before your enemies. And David is saying... Lord, you have rejected us. So what's he doing? He's giving us a theological interpretation of his circumstances is what he's doing. He's looking at his life and he's saying, whereas God has made us all these promises of blessing, we're not experiencing those blessings and there's a reason we're not experiencing the blessings. It's because we've transgressed. So this is an implicit confession of sin. This is a recognition we're in the wrong You're angry with us, so you've rejected us, and now you're breaking us before the enemies. But look at the audacity at the end of verse 1. Oh, restore us. This comes from somebody who knows, even though my Father, God in heaven, is so furious with us because of our sin that he is visiting discipline in the form of enemy armies. That doesn't mean he's going to destroy us. This is a, this is, these are the words of a child who knows that he's loved by his father. He knows that even though he's under the father's wrath, the father will never forsake him. You've rejected us, fors- broken our defenses. You're angry. Restore us. Give us your mercy. That's what David is saying. And then look at verse 2. David, David here in verse 2 uh, shows his understanding that the fate of the world, the fate of the cosmos, is directly tied to the spiritual state of God's people. Look at what he says here in verse 2. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Now, I, I would suggest to you that this probably hasn't literally happened. David may be thinking of, you remember that time when Israel came out of Egypt and they got out of the wilderness and these folks led by Korah rebelled against Moses and the Lord caused the earth to open up and swallow them whole. He may be thinking of something like that, but we don't read in, in the narratives of uh, 1 Chronicles 18 and 19 and 2 Samuel 8 through 10. We don't read of an occasion where there was a huge earthquake and a massive 
chasm opened up in the earth, which is what David is describing here. So I think what we have is a spiritual and metaphorical description of the significance of the people of God being defeated. The people of God being defeated is like the world being torn to pieces. That's what I think David is saying. You've made the land. This is like the world being shaken on its foundations. It's like the world being ripped open. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And again, this audacity. Repair its breaches, for it totters. The breaches, that's this chasm. The tottering, that's the shaking. Fix it, Lord. David is recognizing, we're in the wrong. We're under your discipline. Make it right. Forgive us. And then verse 3, having described the, the effects of Israel's sin and God's discipline on the world, he now talks about the effects of Israel's sin on God's people. Verse 3, you have made your people see hard things. He doesn't go into detail here, but we can imagine what this would look like. I mean, people that have seen uh, peoples conquered by enemy nations, there are gruesome sights beheld in those situations. You've made your people see hard things. And then he says here at the end of verse 3, in what I think, it, again, is a symbolic and theological interpretation of the situation, he says, you have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. What, what wine would David be talking about that God gave to his people that they, they had to drink it all down to the point that they staggered as though they were drunk? I think this is probably the wine of God's wrath that David is talking about. God has given to his people the wine that he's tread out the wine presses, the, the, the grapes that came, the fruit of their lives. The, the fruit of their lives were these, these awful deeds, and God gathered up those awful deeds, and he put them in the wine press, and he tread them out, and then he caused the wine to ferment, and then he made his people drunk on the consequences of what they had done. And even in the midst of this, once again, there's hope. David is going back and forth between, look how bad the situation is, and our hope is in you. We still have hope because you're our father and you're merciful to us. Look at verse 4. You have set up a banner for those who fear you. I, I think what David is thinking about here comes from Exodus chapter 17, where in verse 15, after Israel had, had uh, experienced uh, a victory in battle, Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. So, so there's this, this statement from earlier in Israel's history, from Exodus, 15, Exodus 17, where Moses had said, the Lord is my banner. And I think David is picking that up here and saying, in verse 4 of Psalm 60, you, God, have set up a banner. What's the banner? It's the Lord himself. You have set up a banner for those who fear you. We're going to come back to this idea of God of fearing God as we continue. He says, you have set up a banner for those who fear you that they may flee to it from the bow. So, so there's this fear of God and there's this knowledge of God and the people are taking refuge by fleeing to the Lord in the midst of all their difficulties. And then he cries out for salvation in verse 5. That your beloved ones may be deliver delivered. Give salvation 
by your right hand and answer us. So that's the plea. Give salvation. We are beleaguered, we're embattled, and we're calling on you to save. Look at, look at the way he describes God's people there. Save your beloved ones. That's actually the same term that appears in the Song of Song to describe the beloved it's, it's, it's the same term that you, you find in Psalm 45. If you remember in Psalm 45, it's a wedding song. And the beloved in Psalm 45 is described the same way the beloved in the Song of Songs is described. And now here, David is calling God's people his beloved ones. And you may remember I mentioned at the beginning this, this first line, first words of the superscription in Psalm 60. According to Shushan Aduth. Shushan is actually a word that means uh, uh, lily, and then aduth means testimony, lily of testimony. Uh, we've also got a lot of references to lilies in, in the Song of Songs and in Psalm 45. So there seem to be these connections between Psalm 45 in particular, which is a psalm of the king, and, and, and um, we're, I think we're, we're moving toward the hope for the future king here when, once we get into Psalm 61. And there seem to be these subtle uh, points of connection between, between these various ideas in the Old Testament. Verse 5, that your beloved ones may be delivered. What is David appealing to there as he, as he appeals to the Lord? It, it's like he's saying what one of the prophets said, in wrath, remember mercy. Remember that we're the people that you love. It, David is appealing the way that a little child appeals when he knows he's being disciplined, and, and he, he tears up, and he just reaches out for his parent. The very parent who's disciplining him, he reaches out. In wrath, remember mercy. I'm, I'm justly being punished here, but I'm appealing to your compassion for me. That your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. And that brings us to verses 6 through 8, which is, is a very interesting uh, uh, three verses here in this psalm, uh, because what it does is it forces on us the tension between the idea that God's people are being defeated in battle. That's what we've just seen in verses 1 through 5, right? God's people uh, under David are being defeated in battle, but look at what Psalm 60 verses 6 through 8 says about the Lord. David says here in verse 6, God has spoken in his holiness. So out of his utter uniqueness, out of his absolute set-apartness and his utter devotion to everything that is good and holy and true, out of his holiness, God speaks. And, and he says, with exaltation. And let's just pause and think about this for a moment. God speaks with exaltation. I think this indicates that God is happy. God is happy because God is holy. If, if everything that is holy is everything that is good, this, this tells us that God is experiencing the fullness of goodness all the time with exaltation. And then listen to what he says. I will divide up Shechem. Shechem is this place up in the north in, of, of Israel uh, toward, the, toward the northern um, uh, part of the river Jordan. I will divide up Shechem and portion out the vale of Sukkoth. That's also up in the north. So what, what David is doing is he's working uh, with, with pieces of land 
that are on the the eastern and western shore of the Jordan River, and he's going to start at the north and move down through the south. I will divide up Shechem and portion out the Vale of Succoth. Then he moves down and he says, Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. He's just moving down south. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. So he starts up in the north and he works all the way down to the south. And what he's saying is this. I am absolutely sovereign over all peoples and all lands. God is announcing that he is in control of all places and all peoples. And the tension here is, if God is absolutely sovereign, why are his people being defeated? Do you feel that tension? If God is absolutely sovereign, if God is absolutely powerful, why can't I experience victory in my life over my sin? If God is sovereign and his power is is at work in my life, why am I not patient when I'm supposed to be patient? Why does my rage get the better of me? Why does my envy overcome me? If God is all-powerful and I've been praying to this God, why is it not better for me? I think that's the tension that David is working with here in this psalm. Lord, you're sovereign over all places and all lands, and here we are being defeated. And the answer to the question in the psalm, I think, is the same as the answer to the question in our lives. And it circles back to the reason Israel is under discipline to begin with. We're at fault. And and you notice in this psalm, David is not challenging God's justice. David is not calling into question God's righteousness. David is implicitly acknowledging that the people are in sin, isn't he? He's implicitly saying, you're angry, and the reason is because we're in sin. And now what he's going to do at the end of the psalm, in in verses 9 through 12, is he's going to resolve the tension for us. And and the way that David resolves the tension is the way that we want to resolve the tension. David is going to force the issue of his defeat and God's sovereign power. Look at what he says here in verse 9. Who will bring me to the fortified city? That's a rhetorical question, isn't it? It's obvious who David wants to bring him into the, into the fortified city, isn't it? He wants the Lord to give him the victory, doesn't he? Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Edom is the one, they're, they're the ones that are allied with the, the people from Mesopotamia, Aram Naharayim and Aram Zobah. They're the ones uh, making war on Israel. Who's going to lead me to Edom? You, you see what's happened here? We're being attacked by Edom with their allies, but now the defense is going to become offense because the Lord's going to go to go to battle for Israel. And then, and then he asks here in verse 10, have you not rejected us, O God? That's a question that I, I would suggest to you is calling on the Lord to turn and be merciful, to turn and start to make war on behalf of God's people. And then he challenges the Lord. You don't go forth, O God, with our armies. You're not helping me here, is what he's saying. He's still not questioning God's justice. He's not challenging God's righteousness. He is pleading with the Lord. He's trying to motivate the Lord to turn and show compassion to his people and begin to help them in the battle. God is absolutely sovereign. God's people 
God's people often suffer and don't enjoy the triumph that, that we should enjoy by God's power. And what David is doing is modeling a way to call on the Lord to bring his power to bear in our lives. Look at verse 11. Oh, grant us help against the foe. For vain is the salvation of man. I'm not making alliances with people. I'm not looking to 12-step programs to help me here. I don't need an app to help me overcome my sin. What I need is God. I need you, Lord, to grant me help against the foe. With God, verse 12, we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. And what's true of David's Physical experience in battle is also true of our spiritual experience in spiritual warfare. With God, we shall do valiantly. The same courage that a soldier needs to go out to battle is the courage that a Christian needs to resist temptation. It's the courage that a a, a man or woman of God or a, a child or whoever needs to say, I am not bowing to this peer pressure. I am not giving in to these desires. I am not going to be swept up with the culture in these ways. With God, we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Let me give you four points of application from Psalm 60. First, going back to the superscription. This psalm teaches us perspective, doesn't it? Because it starts after the battle, and then it takes us back into the battle. And I, and I would just encourage you to reflect on this. And, and uh, I was reading this, uh, this book on baseball. It's called Intangibles. And the author was talking about how he was meeting, he was, he was counseling, essentially. He wasn't doing biblical counseling, but he was doing like sports psychology with this guy that was trying to make a big league ball club. And he was talking with him in spring training. And, and he said to this guy, he said, um, where, where do you expect to be in five years? And he said, in five years, I expect to be on a big league roster. And he said, okay, when, when that's the case, how are you going to come at spring training? He said, I'm going to come at spring training. I'm going to be ra- relaxed. I- I'm going to be established. I'm going to have my place. Uh, everybody's going to know that I've got my spot locked up. And, I- and I'm going to be loose. And I'm going I'm to have fun. And the guy said, and how are you approaching this spring training? Which was his, his first uh, spring training where he was trying to make the big league club. And, and this sports psychologist related how it was like the lights came on for this guy because he was approaching this first opportunity like he was gripping the sides, going to try so hard and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this done. And then he realized, you know, if I can have some perspective on this situation and if I can relax and if I can trust the gifts that I have, then things are going to go well. And, and there's something true there for us about walking with God. We, we, we don't want to, we, we can't go into this gripping, this, I'm going to resist sin. No, we've got to go in with confidence and joy. We've got to go in trusting the Lord, confident in his power, and, and approaching our lives, living like we will want to have lived on the day of our funerals. That, that perspective is tremendously helpful to us. I would suggest to you that that's, what's, that's part of what's taught here in Psalm 60. Secondly, this psalm teaches us good theology, doesn't it? And what I have in, partic- in particular in mind is the way that this psalm presents the fact that God is absolutely in control. There is no people, there is no territory that is outside the realm of God's authority, God's 
meticulous, sovereign, moment-by-moment sustenance and overarching divine providential guidance. God is in control. That's what this psalm is teaching us in verses 6 through 8. That's true of the United States of America. Nobody's going to be elected in the United States of America apart from God's sovereign power. And, and, and no terrorist attack is going to happen in the United States of America apart from God's sovereign power. God is utterly and completely in control. Perspective theology number three. This psalm teaches us reliance, doesn't it? It teaches us to trust God. That's what David is doing in this psalm. He knows, he knows the source of the problem, his sin, and God's wrath. I mean, the people, the people attacking possibly get, and my heart is like the heart of a weakling. My heart is like the heart of somebody that faces danger, and they don't rise to the occasion. They, they, they lilt. They wither away. They faint. That would be embarrassing, wouldn't it, to, to be confronted with danger, and you faint away? And that's what David is saying. When my heart is faint, and then he says in verse 2, lead me. To the rock that is higher than I. Uh, now think about the, the literal physical description and then we'll just translate it into the spiritual reality. Because again, I think we've got a literal description that is getting at a spiritual reality. So you need a high rock when the floods are rising or when the enemies are approaching. You want to you get up on a big boulder or maybe a big mountain or a ridge so that the waters won't reach you or so that you're up on top of the enemy shooting down at them while they're coming up at you and you've got the advantage. That's the literal picture. And spiritually, that's what he's saying the Lord is. Lead me to the rock. that is. I am vulnerable. I, I'm going to be swallowed up by these floodwaters. I'm going to be overtaken by these enemies that are coming down at me. And I need you to lead me to this high place so that I'm at a place of advantage. Verse 3. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. This week I listened to this book called Ready Player One. Um, uh, you know, it's one of those books that needs a... Uh, it's, it's got some language in it, so just be warned. I'm not necessarily recommending this book. I'm just telling you I listened to this book. Um, and this, this guy, is um, he's in this dystopian future. And the world is overtaken. It's just eaten up with virtual reality. And everybody lives in virtual reality. Nobody goes outside and, and actually experiences creation. No, nobody... Nobody wants to live in the real world. Everybody wants to live in the virtual reality. And this guy has these two places where he can go to hide. One of them is, is in the real world, and the other one is in uh, the virtual world. Uh, he, he's got what he calls a hideout in the real world where he can go get online and be hidden from everybody. And then he's got this stronghold in the virtual world, which is like this bat cave, that where, where he can go and his enemies can't get to him and uh, it, it, look at what David says here in verse 3. You have been my refuge. When, when you need solace, when you need quiet, when you need uh, to be restored, when you, do, when you need to be safe, do you go to God? That's what David is saying here. You have been my refuge. A strong tower. It's interesting. I mean, Ready Player One, it's not anything close to being a Christian book. But the guy has a stronghold in, in, in the virtual reality. It's like he wants 
God. David is saying, you, God, are my strong tower. You are my place of strength. And then, so, having, having described the Lord or indicated in verses 1 through 3 that the Lord is a, a refuge like no, no other, in verses 4 and 5, David talks about the heritage of those who fear a perfect father. Look at what he says here in verse 4. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Um, so, it, this is a patriarchal culture that David is dealing with. And in a patriarchal culture, um, sons tend to live where their fathers lived. And, and then the, son, the sons of the sons also tend to live where their fathers lived. And everybody's in this, eventually you've got this tribal federation, and everybody's close to one another. And it's like David is saying to his heavenly father, I want to dwell in your tent with you forever. And then he says, changes the imagery a little bit, let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. And then verse 5, for you, O God, have heard my vows. David is probably referencing promises that he's made to the Lord. And then he, he says this at the end of verse 5, you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Last night, uh, Jill and I had the opportunity to talk with one of our kids about what it is to fear God. And um, we, 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 just, we just said, you know, fearing God is, is like you as a, as a young preteen child fearing your parents. And, and how do you fear us? You fear consequences. You fear discipline. You fear displeasure. And, and yet, it's not a fear that drives you away, is it? And then think about what it would be not to fear God. Not to fear God would be not to care about your parents, not to care about their boundaries, not to care about their displeasure, not to care about any consequences they might visit in your life. Now, now, just imagine in your mind the perfect parents. We're not the perfect parents, but God is a perfect father. Imagine in your mind a perfect father and think about relating to this perfect father in this way. You, you care about the about who he is, you know him, you know that he's going to keep his word, you know that he will do what he says he will do, you know that he's a good father, and you don't want to cross him. That's what it is to fear God. You don't want to incur his displeasure. You don't want to experience his discipline. You don't want to go outside the boundaries he's set because you believe that he's good. You believe that he wants what's good for you. That's what it is to fear God. And you know what fathers do in a patriarchal world? Fathers give inheritances. Look at this, verse 5. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. David is talking about a fatherly inheritance. What would this look like? What would the heritage of those who fear God be? I want to give you two statements from the psalm. One of them I've already mentioned. Psalm 25, verse 14. This verse is amazing to me. I would encourage you to commit Psalm 25, verse 14 to memory. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Do you remember the Bible describing Abraham as God's friend? The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. 
and he makes known to them his covenant. The friendship of God, the covenant of God. I mean, marriage is like a covenant, isn't it? What this verse is saying is that those who fear God, they experience God's secret counsel on the ESV. There's this footnote on the word friendship in the lower margin. It says the secret counsel. The secret counsel of God is for those who fear him. You could render that word intimacy. Intimacy with Yahweh is for those who fear him. And to them he makes known his covenant. You want to experience a, a unique an exclusive relationship with God like no other relationship in the world, fear him. That's the pathway to it. You have given me, David says in Psalm 61, verse 5, you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. One more, one more statement from the Psalms. These, these glorious, beautiful verses in Psalm 103. Uh, Psalm 103, verse 13. As a father... Shows compassion to his children. I don't know about you. Uh, I had no concept of this kind of compassion before I had children. Now that I have children, it's, it, it boggles my mind that God Almighty would describe himself as feeling this way about his people. As a father shows compassion to his There's nobody that I'm more spring-loaded to be compassionate to than my children. As a father shows compassion to his children... So the Lord, Yahweh, shows compassion to those who fear him. You have given me, Psalm 61, verse 5, the heritage of those who fear your name. Intimacy with God is for those who fear him. Com the compassion of a father. And, and, and I mean, what's he going to spare? Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us everything? Now, at the end of Psalm 61, uh, this is, the, this is a, a little set of three verses in verses 6 through 8 that I think the commentators are largely befuddled by. And you'll have, I mean, I wouldn't advise that you go read the commentaries on this kind of thing, but they'll say all kinds of things about where these verses came and how they got added to this psalm and how they function in the cult and all this business. Look at what David says here in Psalm 61, verse 6, and think about the promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7. Do you know what the Lord said to David? He said, I'm going to raise up your seed, one of your sons after you, and I'm going to establish his kingdom forever. And he... He's gonna, his throne is going to be established forever before me. And when he's king, the enemies aren't going to attack Israel anymore. When he's king, everything is going to be as I intended it to be when I set out to create the world. Look at what David says here in verse 6. Prolong the life of the king. What king is David talking about? I think he's talking about the king that has been promised to him that the Lord said he would raise up from his, his line. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. You know what those two statements are? Those are poetic ways of saying, may the king that you promised to me reign forever. So you know what David is saying to the Lord? Keep the promises that you've made. Do it, Lord. Make everything right under the reign of the world's true king. Verse 7, may he be enthroned forever before God. This is, this, is, this is really worded. Literally it says, may he sit forever before God. 
You know what that makes me think of? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. May he sit, may he be enthroned forever before God. David is, is praying that the future king from his line, Jesus, would flourish and be established forever. And then look at what he says here. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness. Chesed, steadfast love. God's loyal love and ki- loving kindness. And emet, truth, faithfulness. Appoint steadfast love and truth or faithfulness. This is who God is. The Lord, the Lord, he announced of himself. A God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Hesed and emet. Appoint these things. Appoint your character to watch over him. Guard him, Lord. We could, we could sort of paraphrase this. Guard him with who you are. Nothing is going to overcome God. Nothing is going to undo God's watch over his king. And then David describes how he's going to respond to this in verse 8. He says, so, or maybe thus, or in this way, as a result of, of you answering my prayer here, will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. So will I ever sing praises to your name. George Herbert, in this, this poem called The King of Love My Shepherd Is, he, wrote, he, he, he sort of did a, a poetic paraphrase on this, and he said, Surely thy sweet and wondrous love shall measure all my days. And as it never shall remove, so neither shall my praise. Three points of application in response to this. First, the king is going to come. God is going to answer David's prayer in Psalm 61, 6 through 8. And if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, do you know what that means? That means that you are not a subject of the world's true king. And what we want for you is we want you to bow the knee to the high king. We are lowly people. He is a high king. And we are inviting you to join us in submitting ourselves fully and completely, believing that God is going to establish this king on his throne forever. We're inviting you to join us in being the subjects and the servants and the people of the risen king. Jesus came, he suffered and died for his people, God raised him from the dead, and as we invite you to be a Christian, what we're inviting you to do is join us in identifying ourselves as those who belong to the world's true king. So that's, that's your first point of application. It simply boils down to call on the name of the Lord. That's what David is doing in this psalm. Call on the Lord. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. And maybe you can identify with David. Maybe you feel like you're as far away from God as you can possibly get. If so, you're in good company. You're in company, good company, the company of the king of Israel. David himself identified that himself that way. And everybody in this room would feel the same way. We're sinners. We're sinners, and we've called on this God who shows compassion to those who fear him. And we're inviting you to join us in that. Second, fear God the way you would fear the best parents you can imagine. Fear God the way you would fear a perfect father. And, and again, I, would, I, I just want to say again, memorize Psalm 25, 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. 
and he makes known to them his covenant. If you have trouble falling asleep at night, I know that some people deal with that. Sometimes I deal with that. You turn that verse over and over in your head, it'll be, you, all of a sudden you'll have a worship celebration going on in your bed. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Fear him. Thirdly, and this comes from the end of Psalm 61, and it, and it really is just a description of what David is doing at the end of this psalm. You know what David is doing at the end of this psalm? He's hoping in God's promises. He's saying, Lord, this is what you promised to do. You promised to raise up a king from my line. And I'm calling on you to prolong the life of the king. Do it, Lord. So, so there's your application point. Hope in the promises of God. He is going to make the world new. He's not going to let the world go to hell or burn down. However it may look in the headlines. Whatever may happen between now and November. God is going to bring the king. And the king is going to reign. And the garden is going to be, the, I'm sorry, the desert is going to be turned into the Garden of Eden. And as the waters cover the seas, the knowledge of the glory of God is going to fill all things. Let's pray together. Surely thy sweet and wondrous love shall measure all my days. And as it never shall remove, so neither shall my praise. Lord, may it be so, may it be so that at our funerals, people will look at the way that we live and they will know that we believe that you had won the battle even before it was over. Lord, make us those who trust you. Make us those who walk with you, those who fear you, those who experience your covenant and your friendship and your fatherly compassion. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.